G'day, my name is Jeff. It's my privilege to look with you at the book of Nahum for uh, today and for the next couple of weeks. It's going to be a three-week series on this book of Nahum today, chapter one. Can I encourage you to have your Bible open? We're going to read through Nahum chapter one, think about what it means and how it applies to us as Christians on this side of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll help you also to have the outline of the talk that's uh, on the service program. Let's pray. We'll ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, do please help us now as we look at your word to understand uh, who you are and how to respond rightly and live rightly for you. Give us strength to understand your word. Give us uh, hearts willing to obey you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, earlier this year, I read a book by West Australian pastor Stephen McAlpine. Uh, the book is called Being the Bad Guys. How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. Now, McAlpine points out the fact that the way Christians are perceived has changed drastically in the last few decades. Let me quote from him. Only a few generations ago, Christianity was the good guy. Christian morality was assumed. The cultural, legal and political power structures affirmed Christians. Then something changed. Over the course of the 20th century, we became just one of the guys, one option among many. If Christianity worked for you, fine. If it didn't work for me, also fine. But that's not where we are now. Increasingly, Christianity is viewed as the bad guy. Christianity is no longer an option, it's a problem. We're on the wrong side of history, the wrong side of so many issues and conversations. We're being viewed as angry, entitled, sticking our noses in where they are not wanted and self-interested. There are a number of ways Christians try to respond to this new reality. Some Christians, they give up their faith. Maybe they become convinced that Christianity is wrong or immoral. Or maybe they just can't be bothered with the fuss and the hassle of people not liking them. Uh, whatever the reason, they give up. Some Christians respond a bit differently. They, they, want to, they want to keep the name of Christian, but what they do, they, they mould their Christianity to fit in with the world. Now, whatever the world says, they find a way to, to stay Christian but still agree with, the, with it. So they say, I'm a Christian, but I agree with abortion or homosexuality or, or whatever else that my culture says is right. Some Christians respond differently again what they do they, they they rage about what's happening they get onto social media and they whinge and they grumble and they fight and they argue and the world's going to the dogs and they catastrophize about how this issue or that issue is going to mean the collapse of civilization as we know it some christians some christians they get into like a, a holy huddle uh, they, they reject and ignore the world develop Christian schools, Christian sporting clubs, Christian music, Christian TV, Christian novels, Christian everything, only engage with other Christians, don't engage with the world, stay hidden behind our cultural walls. But I think for most of us, for most of us, the way we respond, we keep on going as Christians 
And we don't change what we believe or anything like that. We, we stay as Bible-believing Christians. But what we do, what we do, we, we relegate our Christian faith to the private realm. So we're openly Christian when we're with other Christians at church on Sunday or at Bible study during the week. But when it comes to engaging with the world, and we do engage with the world in our workplaces or at school or uni or whatever, but when it comes to engaging with the world, we keep silent. We don't talk about God or Jesus in front of non-Christians. We don't, we don't engage with people on any issues where we think we might get ourselves into trouble. If there's a conversation about, say, transgender or something like that, we keep our mouths studiously shut. We, we, we keep all that religious stuff to the private realm. Everywhere else, what we do, we censor ourselves. Friends, there are lots of different ways that Christians respond to this new cultural reality of being the bad guys. But one thing all of these responses have in common is this. They're all built on fear. They're all built on fear. The world out there, those, those people who think Christianity is wrong and immoral, they seem so powerful, so, so strong, so intelligent, so unassailable. We don't feel strong enough or brave enough or equipped enough to, to be able to deal with those who oppose us. We, we fear the, the powerful non-Christian world out there and so we react with anger or uh, we, we retreat or we accommodate or we stay silent. McAlpine puts it this way. Being on the wrong side is tiring and demoralising. It makes us feel defeated or angry. The Assyrian Empire was the most powerful and terrifying empire the world had ever known. It stretched from North Africa through modern Iran, Iraq, um, Kuwait, Syria, Palestine and Turkey. No one was able to defeat or resist the Assyrian army. They were renowned for their extraordinary technology and power and might and number, and they were renowned for their cruelty to their enemies. They didn't just defeat their enemies, they tortured their enemies, they skinned them alive, they, they murdered their children, they did all sorts of other terrifying things. Historica, uh, historian Erica Bleibtreu writes that the his history of Assyria is, she says, as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. Over the centuries, Assyria was a bitter and cruel enemy to the people of Israel, a scary enemy. And that the centre of the empire, that the capital city, was the city of Nineveh. Now, some of you may remember back in 2019, we studied the book of Jonah. Do you remember the book of Jonah? The year was around, somewhere around 750 BC, and God sent the prophet Jonah to this city of Nineveh. Jonah went, eventually, unwillingly, as you may remember. Uh, Nineveh listened to his message. They humbled themselves before God, and God uh, didn't destroy them. 
He, he relented, he had mercy on them, much to Jonah's distress. A few decades after Jonah, 722 BC, Assyria invaded and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. They slaughtered tens of thousands of Israelites. Uh, men, women and children were, were, were tortured and, and murdered. Those who survived, those few who survived, were taken into a captivity, uh, into an exile from which Israel never returned. And then over the next century, Assyria continued to rule the world. They continued to rule the world and they oppressed the kingdom of Judah, what remained of the people of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. They persecuted the Jews. Okay. Well, now let's, let's move forward uh, through 100 years past the book of Jonah. Uh, the year is around 650 BC. The Assyrian Empire is still the most powerful and terrifying empire the world has ever known. And now we hear of a, a bloke called Nahum. A bloke from an obscure little village in Galilee called Elkoth. And, and this, this nobody from nowhere, he has a word from God for Nineveh. He says God gave it to him in a vision. And uh, this vision has been recorded for us. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 1. Have a look with me. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 1. A prophecy concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. Nahum starts off by talking about uh, what God is like. He says God is a God who gets angry. God is a God who is angry with his enemies, a God who takes vengeance on his enemies. He's not quick to anger. He doesn't fly off the handle or anything like that. But he also, he does not let his enemies get away with it. Verse 2. But the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. The next thing Nahum says is that God is not just angry, but God is, God is powerful. Nothing on earth can stop him. If he's decided you will be destroyed, you will be destroyed. Halfway through verse 3, his way is in the whirlwind and the storm. And clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. God is a powerful, unstoppable angry, vengeful enemy. He is good to his people. He is good to those who trust in him. But Nahum says that's not Assyria. Assyria have made themselves to be God's enemies. They've plotted evil against God. They've plotted evil against God's people. And so Nahum says for Assyria, that's it. They will be destroyed. Verse 7. The Lord is good. 
a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, Nineveh, has come forth one, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. Nineveh will be destroyed. It doesn't matter how powerful they are. It doesn't matter how numerous they are. It doesn't matter what allies they manage to get to help them. God is going to save his people Judah and vile Nineveh and her idols are finished. Verse 12, this is what the Lord says. Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be destroyed and pass away. Although I've afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Name finishes the chapter with a message for the people of Judah. He says, peace is coming. Your enemy will be totally destroyed. And so what do they need to do? What do God's people need to do? How do they need to respond? Nahum says, he says, he says, just get on with it. Just get on with faithfully serving your God. But, but notice this. It's not, it's not a dry, grudging service. It's not an angry, defensive service. It's not a scared, silence service. Silent service. No, no, no. God calls on his people to celebrate. To, to celebrate their religious feasts. That is to celebrate at Passover, to celebrate God's redemption. Uh, on the Day of Atonement, to celebrate God's forgiveness. Uh, on the Day of Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles, to celebrate God's provision for them. Uh, God calls on his people to live joyfully for him, to, to, to keep their vows, to keep their vow as a nation, to, 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 to love God and obey his law and to know with confidence that their enemies will soon be destroyed. Verse 15. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah, and fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. All right. Can you see what's here in this first chapter of Nahum? First, the, the nature of God. God is an angry, vengeful, and unstoppable enemy. The situation for Assyria. Assyria have become God's enemy. They, they've done evil to God and to God's people, and so now God is going to destroy them. All their power, all their allies, it's going to do them no good. God will destroy them. Meanwhile, the message for Judah, the message for Judah is this. Keep your vow. Keep your promise to joyfully live for God. He's going to defeat your enemies. He's going to give you peace. So serve God with joy. Celebrate your festivals. Okay. okay. Let's think about applying this passage to ourselves. Friends, the first thing to say is this. 
Without Jesus, we are all God's enemies. Not just Nineveh. Without Jesus, we are all God's enemies. The New Testament is perfectly clear about this. Have a look at these passages from the book of Romans. I've put them on, your, on the outline there, starting in chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Moving into Romans chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 5, talking about Christians now, the Apostle Paul says, we were God's enemies. I know it doesn't feel like it. I know deep down inside us we're convinced that we're, we're not that bad, we're nice people, we're, we're moral, but friends, we're, we're wrong. We're wrong. Like all people, you and I have ignored God, we have rebelled against God, we've refused to give him the love and honour and worship that he deserves uh, in our thoughts and in our words and in our actions. We have disobeyed God. Uh, in, in the things that we've failed to, to think and say and do, we have failed God. And that the truth that Nahum teaches is still the truth. That this is still who God is here today. Nahum chapter 1 and verse, Nahum chapter one and, and verse 2, the Lord is today a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Friend, without Jesus, you are God's enemy. You might not like the thought. You might prefer to think of God as being a God who, 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 who thinks you're fine as you are, or, or you might prefer to think of a God who doesn't get angry. But friend, that God doesn't exist. That God is just an idol you've made up. That the true God, the true God takes vengeance on his foes. He vents his wrath against his enemies. And without Jesus, that's you. You're his enemy. Friends, I reckon part of the reason that we fear the world so much is that we don't fear God enough. Without Jesus, we are God's enemies, like the Assyrians here in Nahum. But friends, friends, the great news of the gospel is this. With Jesus, we become God's forgiven, justified children, at peace with God. Let me show it to you again from the Bible, from Romans chapter 5, on your outline. Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or this... Also Romans 5. Uh, if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We'll be saved from God's anger. Or from 1 John chapter 3, 1 John that we've just done. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. When you rely on Jesus, you move from being God's enemy to being his child, his friend, his person. In terms of name, chapter 1, you move from being Nineveh to being Judah. So friends, the, the, the first and the most important application of name, chapter 1, is this. You need to put your faith in Jesus. You need to put your faith in Jesus. You need, a, you need to ask God to forgive you and make you his person through Jesus' death and resurrection. Acknowledge you're a sinner. 
Thank God that Jesus died and rose again for you and ask him to forgive you and accept you. I hope you've done that. I hope you've done that. Nothing could be more important. But friend, if you are trusting Jesus, can I say, I think the application for you, it's there at the end of Nahum chapter 1. It's in God's advice to his people, the people of Judah. The Assyrians, they might have been the most powerful and terrifying empire the world had ever known. They might have been numerous and had allies all over the world. But the fact is, God is more powerful and God has determined to destroy them. And so for God's people, there is no need to fear. And what does God tell Judah to do instead? To to keep their vows, to live as God's people and to joyfully celebrate their festivals. Do you know what, friends? I reckon if we, could, if we could get this, if we could really imbibe what Nahum says here, it could really help us. It could really help us as we try to live faithfully and fruitfully as Christians in front of an increasingly hostile world. A couple of big things to see here, I reckon. Firstly, firstly not being scared, and secondly, being joyful and faithful in our Christian lives. Firstly, there's nothing to fear from God's enemies. And so we should live joyful, faithful, open, uncensored Christian lives. Friends, there's nothing to fear. I think if we're honest, most of us are scared. That's why we censor ourselves. It's why we keep our Christianity in the private realm. It's why we stay silent. I'm not exactly sure what we're scared of. I mean, we're not going to get skinned alive like the Assyrians used to do to their enemies I guess we're I guess we're scared to have people think badly of us or to have people think that we're we're stupid or gullible or or to have people think that we're intolerant or immoral we're we're worried about our reputation but anyway the thing to learn from Nahum chapter 1 is this we shouldn't be scared of people If anything, we should be scared for them. Without Jesus, people are God's enemies. And God's enemies, they're on a one-way path to destruction. doesn't matter how powerful they are. doesn't matter how smart they are. It doesn't matter how religious they are. It doesn't matter how fervent they are in their beliefs. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that they themselves don't believe that they're in trouble with God or that there is a God or that they're God's enemies. It doesn't matter if they don't believe it. The reality is they, without Jesus, are God's enemies and destruction is coming. Friends, we've got to get it clear in our heads. We don't want to live our lives seeking the approval of God's enemies, pandering to to God's enemies. We, We don't want to live in fear of their opinions If they disapprove of us or think us stupid or immoral, it doesn't matter. It's nothing to be scared of. So friends, stop living in fear. Stop stop running and hiding. Stop fudging what we believe to to be more acceptable. Stop responding with defense and, and, and anger. Stop cowering away in silence. We need to care more about what God thinks and less about what people think. 
Stop fearing. Stop fearing. God's enemies will be destroyed. Don't fear them. Fear for them. Instead, what we need to set our minds to do is this. We need to set in our minds. I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to openly live a joyful, faithful Christian life. I'll keep my vow to, to love and serve Jesus. And like Judah is called to here in Nahum chapter 1, I'm going to celebrate. Like they celebrated God's redemption at Passover. I'm going to rejoice in my redemption in Christ. Like they celebrated God's forgiveness on the Day of Atonement. I'm going to celebrate the forgiveness that is mine in Christ. Like they celebrated the way God provided for them at Pentecost and, and, and Feast of Tabernacles. I'm going I'm to delight in the fact that God is giving me everything I need and is bringing me through this life and into eternal life, into the ultimate promised land. Friends, we need to, to commit ourselves, to commit in our own minds, I'm going to live a faithful, joyful Christian life. And I'm going to do it whether people see me or not. We're going to set this in our minds. I'm going to be a loving, joyful, faithful Christian in front of my unbelieving family, in front of my school friends, in front of my university friends. I'm going to be a joyful, faithful, open Christian in front of my workmates. I'm going to celebrate Jesus. I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to serve Jesus with joy. And I'm going to do it openly, uncensored. Some people won't like it. Too bad. I need to stop being scared. But you know what? Some people might like it. Some people might look at you and your joy in Christ and go, that's something I'd like to have. McAlpine puts it this way in his book. As we unpack the answers the Bible offers, we will find ourselves able to do what many Christians have done down the ages, live holy, happy, loving and joyous lives that compel as many people as they repel to be the best bad guys we can be. A couple of weeks ago at the Olympics, I saw a great example of this. A girl called uh, Nicola McDermott won a silver medal for high jump. Uh, on her wrist, she, uh, she used to write Bible verses and uh, I understand she had written, uh, Jesus makes all things new. Nicola was interviewed after she won her medal. Uh, the interviewer asked her about her faith, and she said this. There's so many questions I want to ask you. I'll start with your faith. When did this become such a significant part of your life? I think as a teenager, um, you know, I, was, I was always an outcast, and I got welcomed in um, to a faith community that loved me. And I just remember encountering God's love, and it changed the way that I thought of myself as a misfit and like, you know, why am I created so tall and stuff? And it gave me passion and purpose to use it. Um, and I, I think in, in 2017 was my big moment where it, it flicked a switch 
and I just decided to pursue God over sport and whatever comes with sport is a bonus but I'm already complete and perfect in love regardless of it and that's just allowed me to soar over every high jump bar and not be um, not be scared anymore because I'm loved and that's the most important thing. It's not exactly two ways to live. She didn't manage to share the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. But, but what I love, the, the, the beauty of her answer is this. She showed a genuine joy in being loved by Jesus. She openly delighted in Jesus and in his people. Now, some people might have looked at her and thought she was stupid. But some people might have saw, seen it and thought, wow, I wouldn't mind knowing, knowing some of that joy myself. Well, friends, what do you reckon? You reckon you can do it? You reckon you can stop being scared? You reckon you can resolve to live as an uncensored, joyful Christian? I know I want to do it. I don't pretend it's going to be easy, but I really want to do that, don't you? So, friends, let's have a go. Let's go for it. Let's strive to live openly joyful Christian lives in front of a hostile world. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we have plenty to be joyful about. Thank you that in Christ you have loved us and forgiven us and enables us to be your people and you will save us from your wrath. Help us not to be scared of your enemies. Help us instead to commend your love by living happy, holy, loving, joyous lives. And we pray that we might be able to compel people to, 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 to long for the Lord Jesus, whom we know and love. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.